Food, finance, and politics, and basically whatever I want to talk about. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wiseology. Very exciting episode. Even though the market is imploding today, um, we're not going to talk about that. Um, I have a very special guest, um, a friend uh, and someone who I admire dearly for many reasons, which uh, hopefully will, will come out as we talk. Um, my friend Ramon, who uh, is a Cuban national or Cuban, uh, originally a Cuban national, who uh, came to the United States when communism started to settle in. Uh, Ramon, welcome. And uh, I, I want to get into all of this stuff, but I just wanted to say hello thank, first. Thank you for having uh, it's great to have you. So, um, the reason that we're having this episode today and that we're so happy that you've graced us with your presence is that um, all the hubbub about the the uprising, um, at least uprising in attitude, and pockets of uh, protest within the streets of Cuba, um, I wanted your perspective, because I know some of your history um, with your former country, and um, I know you're very passionate about your, your heritage and, and the Cuban culture, uh, pre-communism. Um, perhaps you can give us a little history Yes, um, I, I, I want, I hate to rain on everybody's parade because everybody's excited about what's happening in Cuba. Um, and unfortunately, uh, just having a disaffected population is not enough to overthrow a government, okay? Um, for, uh, first of all, you have to understand that while I'm a Cuban and all the Cubans are... Um, demonstrating uh, Cubans fall in, in different groups, right? I'm a political exile. I came here uh, in 1959, 17 days after uh, the revolution took over Cuba. Uh, and I came because uh, my family, uh, my family's businesses were confiscated the first week that the revolution took over. And... Just not to interrupt you. So the first week when the revolution's happening, and they've and they've and uh, Fidel has has assumed power. Yeah, he, he marches into Havana, and the entire population comes out and just greets him and hugs him, the savior, the second coming of Jesus Christ, etc. So in your your so the the government assumes control of your privately controlled family business. Um, which I believe was banking? Yes. Uh, we were unlucky in that we had two businesses that were very critical to any government. Um, we had a bank. Uh, those weren't the days of these major banks with uh, 100 uh, offices everywhere. I mean, a bank was a bank, you know, but there were few banks. So they were all, in proportion to the island, big and we and we had uh, stores, um, and the stores were in fact uh, a form of Sears Roebuck franchise. The way it worked in Cuba, Sears had the huge store in Havana, and then uh, people would set up stores around the island, 
uh, which carried Sears merchandise as well as uh, foodstuffs, etc. And the Sears catalog was there, so people could come into the store and if you had it in stock, they would buy it. But if not, you ordered it from the Sears catalog. So they were kind of like a, they weren't Sears stores and they were. It was a different setup at the time. Um, so week one, Fidel comes in and what do all revolutions need? They need money. Uh, and the very first bank he confiscates was ours. Okay. Um, and then the second thing they, they did was the people went out to celebrate and looted all, our, all of our stores, you know, because revolutions do that. People loot, okay? So basically, we were left penniless. And like I said, um, in the uh, third week of January, we just left. You know, they, they were done with us, in effect. So they were done with all, any form of private business, capitalism, they, it wasn't just your family. It no. was every family that was in a position of, of wealth attained through private business. Right, absolutely. They let the little mom and pa shops go, but any large businesses, it was over. Right. If it stood yeah. out in a balance sheet, it was done. It was done. It was done. Okay. Um, and what the government didn't get, the looters got. It was horrendous, you know. Um, so that's the first wave, the... Cuban political exiles. Okay? And, and and you everyone was given a choice. I'm sure there were certain countries that welcomed anyone that didn't want to be a part of the communist movement. Well, yeah, but see, uh, we're talking uh, early days. He hadn't declared himself a communist yet. He was just uh, overthrowing uh, a despicable, uh, in quotes, group of people, the oppressors, you know, the, the French aristocracy had it happened to them, the, the Russian nobles had it happened to them, and the Cuban aristocracy had it happened to them. Every one of these revolutions um, has that in common. They take the people in power, the wealthy, and they kick them out. You know, we were lucky that they didn't have a guillotine on, you know, they just said leave, and we left, okay? Um, that was pre-Fidel announcing that he was communist, okay? Then there's a second wave of Cubans. The ones who stayed thinking that, oh my God, they got rid of this dictator and they got rid of these bad people that have been oppressing us for 400 years. It's a new beginning, a new dawn, and those people, when Fidel announces that he's a communist, you know, um, they didn't want any part of that. So there's a second wave. Also political uh, exiles, but middle class. You know, the, the professionals, the school teachers, doctors, etc., that thought they had a new dawn, a new beginning, and all of a sudden they got communism thrown at them. So first you had the elite, the wealthy elite, then the professionals. And we all ended up, most of us ended up in Miami. Yeah. After that, uh, what happened was that, uh, you know, communism, 
Uh, everybody uh, talks about, uh, you know, in capitalism, if you have the Midas touch, uh, you get wealthy. Well, uh, in communism, you have the fecal touch. Every, everything communist touch <laughs> turns into excrement, you know, uh, uh, sooner or later. Okay. Um, and it did. So all of the wealth they took over, all of the beautiful buildings, all just everything, because maybe a lot of your listeners don't understand that Cuba was a first world country. We were in, in the Caribbean, but we were at par with the U.S. We had color TV. We had everything the U.S. had. We were an, an anomaly. We were a first world country, okay? And it takes a while to destroy a first world country. But they did it. You know, the, when, when everything you touch uh, turns to excrement, um, in a few years, it's over. Um, I happened to have returned to Cuba uh, in 2016. And... I can. Uh, I went to my family home, the place where I was born. Still standing. It's still standing. It was a beautiful uh, four-story palace in Havana. You know, uh, about twenty of our family members lived there uh, with our servants. Um, and I went back to the place where I was born. Well, the palace that we left, because there's no other word for it, a beautiful Spanish four-story palace with central courtyard and beautiful gates. Uh, use your imagination, okay? I am. You know, I, I, I got there and the palace is still standing, but all of the terraces fell off. The, uh, this beautiful two or 300-year-old uh, wooden entrance door with a pedestrian gate is still standing. Boy, the Spaniards built strong. I mean, it's still, it's still there. The building hasn't been painted in 60 years. Parts have fallen off. So, so I walk up and the, the pedestrian gate is open and there's a uh, lady sitting in a wheelchair at the gate. And I walk up to her. I, I say, hello, how are you? Um, I was born here. And she looks at me and she says, you're Don Alejandro's grandson. Apparently, I look like my grandfather. <laughs> she was a child there when I was a child. Okay? When we left, the servants took over. Um, and I asked her, can I, can I walk in? And she says, of course, of course, you know. So I walked in and where the beautiful central garden was and uh, the fountain, all that is gone. And they built little hovels everywhere. And there's 200 people living in that building and it's falling apart. And all of the ex uh, um, wiring is exposed. All of the plumbing is exposed. I, I mean, it's a miracle it hasn't burnt down. Um, and that's communism. You know, they, they take gold and turn it into crap. Okay? And that, I gave you that example because the whole island is like that. Okay? And, and I'm sorry for my people because their ancestors made a very bad choice. 
and they're living with it today. Yeah, well, know? there's recourse for all the decisions that we make in life. It doesn't matter what it's about. There is recourse yeah, for those yeah. decisions. Some yeah. decisions work out. Some decisions are neutral. There's consequences. And some, yeah. there are negative consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're living, and, and really, I'm a Cuban and they're Cubans. And I feel for them. It's not their fault. They didn't make the choice. It was their ancestors that made the choice. Okay? Um, but some of those ancestors are still living there today. Yes, they are. And, and they're probably, well, probably. It's their children that were born into it yeah. that didn't really have the choice, that they, their parents did have the choice. Yes, yes. And they chose wrong. They chose wrong. There's no question about it. Uh, and look, uh, you, you don't uh, take the sins of the father and, and put him on the child. So I'm not mad at anybody. Um, life worked out pretty well for me anyway, you know, <clears throat> because water always finds its level. You know, we were wealthy in Cuba. We ended up being wealthy here. It's, uh, that's, not, that's not an issue. Um, well, that but, tends to be the case with hardworking people. Absolutely. You know, that persevere. Yeah, we had had a conversation uh, about um, how capitalism looks on paper and versus communism. Boy, you know, you read about communism, it's from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Wow, that's a, yay! Now yeah. you read capitalism and it says, work hard, son of a bitch, or you're going to starve, <laughs> you know? So, you know, people, I understand people um, with little education and knowledge about the realities of econ economics choosing communism. You know, because it looks so good on paper, but yeah, but it's uh, ironic. Capitalism that looks so bad on paper is so great in practice, and communism that looks so great on paper is so horrible in practice. You know, and unfortunately for the people of Cuba, um, they have been sitting ninety miles off the coast, seeing the difference. Because all the people that go back to Cuba, they have a nice house in Hialeah with a pool, a boat, four cars, and they, they go back with pictures. And they say, yeah, well, here's our vacation in Paris, and here's where we went to Hawaii, and, here, and they're sitting there um, wondering what they're going to eat tomorrow. So it exacerbates their level of Frustration. disaffection. You know, they're saying, oh my God, grandfather picked this shit. I'm here, and then my cousin is, is in the U.S., and he's got a brand-new Corvette, you know? Um, so it just, it's, it's horrible for them. And the irony is, is, is painful. Absolutely. Then we started to get the third wave, the economic exiles, the ones that built this country. This country is built on people who were at one place and, th and they said, fuck this. I'm going, I, fuck this, I'm going. You know, they, they got on the Mayflower and came over here. A courageous thing to do. There was no guarantee you were going to survive the voyage. There's no guarantee you're going to survive crossing the Rio Grande. Uh, so all the immigrants that came to this country have something in common. They're all brave. They're all Get up, get up and go. They, they, they have ambition. That's why this country is great. So then we started to get that, that group of Cubans, the ones that said, fuck this, 
you know, my grandfather made a bad decision. I'm not sticking to it. I'm going to my cousin Pepe in Miami and I'm going to work in his business and I'm going to get money. I'm going to get a Corvette too. But those people, unlike uh, myself, have very close ties to Cuba. Uh, they didn't come like we did, whole families. We left nothing behind. They, the brave ones left and their chicken cousins stayed. Okay? Maybe they got seasick. Whatever. You know, <laughs> but, 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 but the ones that got here send money back. Okay? The remesa, you know, the 100 bucks a month. A doctor in Cuba makes you 20 US dollars a month. So can you imagine if your cousin Pepe sends you a hundred bucks? You know, yay, you're better off than somebody that spent 10 years in college. That's incredible. Yeah. It's just, it's, I mean, they're living in the stone age there. They are. So for, for quite a while, um, Fidel was propped up inadvertently by all the Cubans of the third wave that correctly send money back to their parents and to their families to, to keep him afloat. They didn't realize that they were keeping Fidel afloat. Okay? Right. Uh, and, and that's the embargo. Uh, America decided that they weren't going to keep Fidel afloat economically, so we have the embargo in place. But the embargo is not responsible for people not eating, the, the, the embargo is not responsible uh, for all of the bad luck that Cuba has. The embargo is just like, you know, while you remain communist, we're not doing business with you. Period. But the U.S. has a soft heart. So they allow the Cubans that have come in the third wave to send money back. If the U.S. was really, really a monster, they would say, you can't send money back. That's it. You can come over here and get rich, but your brother's got to die of hunger in Cuba. The U.S. did not do that, which it was very altruistic and, and a wonderful thing about this country, you know. Um, and that propped up everything for a while. However, you can't prop up a system that is completely shit and corrupt forever. It doesn't work anywhere. It, it doesn't work, you know. And perhaps if COVID had not come along, Cuba would be still chugging along, you know, with everybody sending a, a few hundred bucks a month to their families and, you know, everybody surviving. But COVID came along, okay? And uh, basically, COVID is like every man for himself, you know, shut down the country, and it's kind of tough to send money to Cuba when you're not working and you don't know uh, what you really are, are going to do next month. I mean, go back to 2020, things were very iffy for us. And that stopped the flow of money to Cuba. Okay? And then they got COVID. That's well. But they didn't have the wonderful uh, health system that we have. They didn't have the government organization that we have. You know, Cuba has nothing. You know, um, it's kind of ironic that a, a, a system that says 
from our citizens according to their ability and to their citizens according to their need, uh, when the citizens had a need, they weren't able to come up with it. Today, you better not get a headache in Cuba because there isn't an aspirin on the island. You can't even provide an aspirin. Can you imagine uh, COVID testing, um, uh, vaccinations? The, the system just fell apart. Well, I would think that, you know, like a lot of these South American countries, that they'd be, you know, bending over backwards to take in the Chinese, the Chinese vaccine, um, which well, was very prevalent in Brazil. Yeah. Not very effective um, compared to the Pfizer or the Moderna, even the Johnson & Johnson. But like, you know, the Chinese and the Russians are willing to give people well, vaccines. The, the Chinese have added their vaccine to the Silk Road Initiative. And I bet you if you ask a uh, hundred people in the U.S. about the Silk Road Initiative, 90 won't know, I've never heard about it. And the Silk Road Initiative, uh, in simple words, is the Chinese take over the world, okay? And as for me, you're never gonna make me believe that the Chinese didn't send us COVID on purpose. Okay? I'm with you on that. For every but... action, there's a reaction. Donald Trump attacked the Chinese with tariffs. He was belligerent towards them, and they responded in a typical Machiavellian Chinese confusion, 5,000-year history of experience. They sent the world COVID and said, okay, See what you do with this. Okay, now okay. I, want, I just want to pause you for a second. I want to come back to that. Right. So I want to get a little. I, I want to now. I want to go into your your background a little. So you're a political exile, and this will help people understand your perspective. Um, <laughs> so you, you you you. I want to fast forward, yeah. and, and we'll do the short version. Yeah. Um, you you're in this country as a as an eighteen year old. Nine? No, no, I was uh, eleven when I got here. You, but when, yeah. but you're you're going you're getting ready you're going to college. Yes, yes. And oh. you go to college and you, you study to be an accountant. <laughs> okay, so yeah. you become you you graduate from a um, I, I graduated from a prestigious Jesuit university. Okay, and yeah. um, you're you're a professional accountant, and when, I get when, recruited by the CIA. You get recruited by the CIA. Okay. Now, can you please? Okay. Uh, just um, briefly go into that, and then I want to circle back to okay. your theory on the the, the, yeah. the Chinese leaking on purpose. Okay. Um, I was a precocious child. Um, I was Jesuit educated all my life. Um, so when we got here to the U.S., flat broke. I mean, we got here with the clothes on our backs. We had to sell my mom's jewelry so that we could survive. Um, it wasn't the days of the internet and uh, secret bank accounts everywhere. I mean, we were sophisticated, educated people who never, who didn't have the imagination that we could lose our country. You know, they say 9-11 was an, a, a failure of imagination because we couldn't think that uh, 20 Arabs would fly planes into our buildings. Well, for us, 1959 was a failure of imagination. We never thought we could lose our country. You know, so anyway, we're here. The Jesuits educate me. I'm ready to go. And of course, um, 
The CIA until recently was a place for the elite, you know, Ivy League uh, schools, etc. And of course, all of our uh, elite people went to work at the CIA to go back and overthrow Fidel. So, so I was recruited uh, uh, in college, actually before I got out. Um, and for those younger listeners, by the way, back in the day, a large portion of the CIA's mission was to combat the spread of communism. That was number one. Right. So that, that was the it. fact that Cuba being 96 miles off the coast of Florida without getting into the whole history yeah. of it, it was a, it was a threat. Not only was it a threat, at one point they tried to put nuclear weapons on the island. I mean, Cuba was a um uh, it was almost the start of World War III. Yes. But I don't I didn't want to get uh, into all that, but yeah, I just Yeah. I mean, South Florida was an armed camp. Uh, all the, uh, ar there were army tents everywhere. I mean, we were ready for a war. Um so I I was um I was recruited into that. I was sent to the School of the Americas. Uh, where I became, um, uh, I might as well say the bad stuff so that people, I'm, I'm a full-blown assassin. Uh, I was, uh, I learned how to torture people and, and maim and destroy communists. And so and, can you, can you name a couple of your, of your classmates that you uh, went to school with there? Noriega, Pinochet, Dabuzon, I mean, the, the, the bogeyman okay, of the world. So, so not, so these aren't exactly, uh, <laughs> people that are going on the, for doctorate degrees no, no, in, no, no, in no, humanity. No, no, no. no, okay. no. <laughs> this is, this is a, this is a, a, a very, uh, unique school. The, the, the nickname of the school was School of Assassins. Okay. And there was a very uh, important reason why it was in Panama. Because you can't have a school of assassins in the U.S. It's <laughs> illegal. You know, so we all went there. And then we did horrendous things. Um, I personally am uh, responsible with um, nearly a thousand uh, kills. You know, uh, all in the name of keeping the Potemkin village that is America going. Okay. Um, doing one operation called uh, Operation Condor. Uh, it's estimated that we killed anywhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people. Wow. All communist sympathizers. Um, I mean, uh, someday I'll show you our rules of engagement written by a president of the U.S. I mean, you're, you're going to say, no, nah, this can't be. You know, but, but it's for real. Uh, we had... Um, you know, like secret agents have the, uh, you know, 007 license to kill. We had license to kill, you know. Uh, so somebody like me could kill a lot of people and nothing happened to us. As long as you did it in the, in the course of your, of your duties. Um, in the course of my duties, uh, I infiltrated the Medellin cocaine cartel and became their chief financial officer. And this is on behest of the U.S. Oh, the, government. Absolutely, absolutely. So, let, just to, to to summarize real quickly, you've been recruited by the U.S. government as an accountant. Well, as a banker. As a banker, yeah. they teach you. They send you down to the assassin school uh -huh. that didn't exist, but now everyone knows existed yeah. to a certain degree. Anyway, you go with some. You have some very fine classmates, and I believe you told me once that. 
when you would go out and do a drill or a, a training drill, if you didn't come back, you failed. You failed. That's yeah. a, that's <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there was no, you didn't get three lives no, like no, in a no, video no, game. No, no, no. If you went out on a drill, yeah. you failed. So anyway, you come back, you get your training there. You've, you've participated in some, um, some not so nice, you know, some dirty, uh, wet work. Absolutely. Um, and you're back now and you are trained as an assassin and you are, that was your graduate school. Your undergrad is in banking with yeah. a specialty in accounting. Yeah. And the U.S. government now wants you to participate with the drug cartel run by Pablo Escobar. Correct. Uh, before I did that, though, uh, I went to more graduate work, and they made me an expert in covert financing. All covert operations need to be financed. Money is everything, and you have to know how to do it correctly. And covert finance, financing happens to be money laundering, you know, by another name. Right. You know, uh, when you fund an operation and agents get captured, you can't have the money coming back to the U.S. You know, you can't have that kind of proof. So you learn how to make the money trails say something else. So I was also trained to launder by the U.S. government. You know, and like I said, I was a precocious kid. And I was a good, good student. Where everything goes bad is, uh, I was set up in Miami. Oh, by the way, I am a real CPA. Uh, uh, people have a misconception that that for this operation you will be a brain surgeon. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, you are what you say you are. You're the money guy. Yeah, you know, you have to be what you say you are. You can't pretend to be. So I'm a real CPA. I'm a real MBA. Um, so I was set up here, and um, I had a beautiful office, and I was a corrupt CPA, okay? Uh, when I was paymaster for a, a team, a covert team, I made sure all trails of money uh, for the team led away from the U.S. Okay, to bad people, supposedly bad people. Uh, and I did a very, very, very good job. And one day, um, a client comes in and says, "Hey, this Columbia wants to meet you." And uh, I said, "No." And we went back and forth. The uh, bottom line is. Um, I finally met the Colombian, and uh, his name was Pablo Escobar, and we were both 25 years old. Yeah. Uh, he was a, uh, a young uh, thug, as was I, but I was an educated thug. And it was love at first sight uh, because I had things he needed, and he had things I needed, you know. Uh, and then it was a failure of imagination on the on behalf of the government. Because I reported to my case officer, Dr. Manuel Artime, was going. He went up, and they went back and, and, and said, go ahead and do it. Well, nobody would ever imagine that a couple of young kids, one selling cocaine and one laundering money, would end up with a, a, the manufacturing sale of 80% of the world's cocaine. And me laundering between two and three billion dollars a year in 1978, not 
in today's billions. You know, that was real money back then. You know, today, even poor people talk about trillions. Well, back then, billions were unheard of in the uh, language of the common folk. And, and we laundered, sold and laundered billions of dollars. Uh, a failure of imagination. And for doing that, uh, I paid with 25 years of my life in prison because I broke the law. And the way this works is just like uh, Mission Impossible. If you get caught, it's over. Well, I held my water. I got caught and I, and I did the time, so, which, of which I'm very proud, you know. Um, well, that's probably why you're here today also. Yeah. The only reason that it's not a secret what I did anymore is that uh, there was a scandal called Iran-Contra. And my name came out as, as a CIA operative during that. And so it was impossible to, to uh, deny it any longer. You know, you, you have plausible deniability until you don't. And they found CIA money in my possession that could be traced to me. And it was all over. Uh, so basically, I started my career in one scandal called Watergate, because those were Cuban, <laughs> Cuban <laughs> burglars on my team that broke into the Democratic um, Watergate Hotel. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, my career ended in Iran-Contra, because it was my team again uh, uh, doing that. Uh, and in between those two scandals, it could be another hundred that never saw the light of day. Yeah, well, I'm you guessing know? that when they brought you in, that when the U.S. government asked you to have your team, you know, you'd be the CFO... I imagine that the U.S. government got their fair share of money to finance their anti-communism operations long before Iran-Contra. Listen, I operated for 15 years, and for 15 years, we financed all those covert operations with dirty money. That's, that's just the way it was. You know, the, there was no other place to find that kind of money to fight that powerful an enemy. Um... That's just the Off way the it books. is. Off the books. Off the books, you know, and, and um, you know, a, a terribly racist and horrendous thing that I'm going to say. The thinking back then was, look, the only people that consume drugs are the, are the, 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 the low lives of the economy, so what do we care? You know, uh, we're not, uh, back then nobody thought... This cocaine or this marijuana is going to college students and, and the elite universities. No, this is going to the ghettos, to the, the poor white, uh, the poor white, the poor blacks, the poor Hispanics that use it, the scum of the earth. What do we care? Let's finance the fight against communism on the back of the poor lowlifes. Win-win, you know, except that it wasn't win-win, you know. Uh, drugs ended up dis uh, destroying a lot of a lot of people from all social strata. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The drugs, you know, like permeate. you said, you can't. You know, you don't have the imagination to think about the unimaginative, right? Or the, right. And once it jumps from one socioeconomic class and moves its way up, it's like opening Pandora's box. It's all over. I mean, you know, the children of. Uh, of wealthy people who had a lot of idle time, started experimenting with drugs, 
And pretty soon, it just wasn't the, the scum of the earth using them. It was everyone. And uh, it has taken a long time, but, you know, marijuana, I believe, will be legal everywhere in the U.S. for recreational use in not too long a time, you know, because uh, realities uh, have to be accepted eventually. Look, you can block the sun with your thumb all day, but the sun is still there. Yeah. And the drug problem uh, uh, needs to be addressed. But more importantly, and I think ironically, they're going to address it not because everybody's willing to say, oh, drugs aren't as bad. Uh, they're going to do it because we need a source of revenue to run this of country. Okay? Of course. And we want to tax marijuana and we want to tax cocaine and we want to tax all the drugs. And then we, we want to regulate it. So, so that we can uh, lower the, the death rate from overdosing. We want to tax it, okay? And more importantly, we want every drug user to be registered so that we can tell you, you know, we're not going to give you your pilot's license because you use this drug. You know, and you can't, uh, be a train conductor or a train driver or you can be a bus driver uh, so you can control society more uh, by taxing and regulating than the, the way it is now. And you know, you know? It's, it's funny that you talk about that because obviously it's a, it represents the potential cottage industry for, for taxation for the, for the federal government. Absolutely. The states... Most of the states that I'm aware of, they don't want your information. They want the revenue. Yeah. They want they want the revenue and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to they don't want to kill the golden goose, so to speak. The federal government in if they if they approve or they they legalize across the nation federally, the quid pro quo is going to be I don't know, let's call it 15% of all sales on top of the taxes you pay in the individual states. Yeah, but it's still a good deal because the cost... What's found money? Yeah, the, the cost uh, of, of marijuana and cocaine is high because of its illegality. It doesn't cost that much to produce them if you didn't have the illegal side of it. So uh, you can see all of the big uh, drug manufacturings, uh, manufacturers manufacturing uh, uh, under ISO uh, quality control standards, and you have great cocaine. This has got this quality, uh, and, and, and this one will do this, and this one will do that. So pretty soon you're going to have a great uh, selection. You know, I want to get high for an hour. I want to get high for the rest of the day kind of thing. Um, uh, dosages measured out accurately. Uh, you're going to have the best marijuana in the world because now the, the huge marijuana growing companies um, have really taken it to a science, you know, and you're going to have great edibles everywhere. I mean, this is going to be great. And, and the tax revenue are go is going to come in and we're all going to live happily ever after. And uh, attorneys are going to have to uh, find another source of revenue because drug cases are going to cease to exist. You know? Maybe they can focus on crime. Just an idea. Oh. Just an idea. Gosh. 
you know, like you're, murder. You're, you're such a radical, you know. <laughs> or, or, you know. And people that commit violent crime, maybe they don't get out on bail for free, but that's we can talk about that for hours. Yeah, but th- that's such radical thinking, <laughs> you know. Take take the FBI and and try to control real crime, uh, you know, and, and take all of the DEA and put them out there to stop hijackings and you know carjackings and all, all that stuff well wow, that's such a radical idea yeah um, well. but but you know it, <laughs> it's it's always about money um one of the reasons i had an interesting life is that my brief was money and money touches everything you know so while i was uh just a paymaster uh, paymasters end up touching everything you know, um, the details of any covert operation or any criminal enterprise um, are quite a bit, and, and nothing can function if you can't get the right amount of money to the right place, all right? Um, so uh, I ended up um, working with... Uh, a lot of interesting people on a lot of interesting things. Um, uh, and right now we started this conversation talking about Cuba and the overthrow of communists, etc. Well, I happen to have a little experience in the overthrow of governments. I worked on a coup, a successful coup in 1980 in Bolivia. And I was a paymaster for the drug dealers. The, the coup became known the cocaine coup, you know. Um, so I learned about coups and what makes them uh, successful during uh, 1980. Um, and I can tell you that several key elements necessary to overthrow the Cuban government are not present. And until you can get all of those all your ducks in order, you're not going to overthrow communism in Cuba. Uh, the first thing you need to overthrow a government is, is a disaffected population. We got that. Okay? That's a There's given. plenty of that. That's a given. There isn't one happy Cuban on that island right now. There's 13 million pissed off people. Including the people that are actually running the country. Yeah. They're not happy either. They're not happy. I mean, they're having to shoot their own people. You know, and, and, and that... Uh, unless you're a real born psychopath, I'm a psychopath, but I was created, I was educated. You were trained to be that way. Into my psychopathy. And I use it and I control it. You know, I don't just go out and kill people for pleasure. You know, I never did. Um, although it was pleasurable to kill some people, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Outside of the psychopaths in the army and, and the uh, security forces of Cuba, uh, the vast majority are just people. They got a job. I, I work at the Ministry of Interior. That's my job. And they want to live their lives. They want to live their lives. They don't want to go shoot their mother or their brother. You know, not everybody gets to work in the Ministry of Interior. And those people have relatives. So when they're told to go out and beat the shit out of demonstrators, they're facing the real reality that they may have to beat their brother. And that's no fun. So you got 13 million really unhappy people on that island. That's one. But the next thing you need 
is you need a charismatic leader for the opposition. He needs to be born in Cuba, not one of the kids here that are of Cuban descent. We need a, you need a real Cuban, born in Cuba, educated in Cuba. Um, Someone who's lived the life. Who's lived the life. He must be well-educated and charismatic. There is no such Cuban right now. There is no organized opposition, which is the next thing you need. You get that leader, and then you need a COO underneath him that when you take over the government, your COO is going to get that country running, the train's running on time, and then you need a CFO because everything is money, you know? So the overthrow of Cuba is missing some real critical elements. It's okay? a big void. Okay. Uh, and until you get those in place, we are not going to overthrow that government that I hate so much. Okay. Not the people, uh, the no, government. The government. I, I, pathologically, I'm a virulent anti communist. You're not going to ever meet somebody that's killed as many as I have, you know. I mean, uh, that's because I'm young and I survived. There were others uh, uh, of my team that probably killed quite a bit, but they're dead because I was the young kid in the group. You know, the, uh, the other ones are in the 90s. So that's dead. by age. It's by death age. by age, not by, age. Not, not, not by so, not so, any other so, means. So um, uh, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that has had my experience fighting communism. Um, and I hate them. I hate them. Uh, with me, it's uh, pathological. But I understand my psychopathy. And I can keep it controlled, you know. Um, so if I thought there was a chance of overthrowing that government today, I'd be there. Because I think they would need somebody with my experience to do it. But I would need to be there following a charismatic leader. And I haven't found anybody to follow. You know, I could probably be a great CFO for them. Okay, so before, but, before we, before, I want to pick that up. But just to let everyone know that when you were first recruited by the U.S. government, when you were a kid, yes, um, you were recruited to take part in the retaking of Cuba. Absolutely, so that, that was uh, our mission, right? So, but I, we didn't we didn't touch on that. Yeah. So, just so that everyone's clear, you are experienced. I know you brought up your the, the coup in in Bolivia, but you were trained to take back control of a government that was wrongly yeah taken uh, initially in correct. Cuba. And, and perhaps we ought to uh, give your listeners a little um, history lesson here, Cuba started exporting communism to Central and South America, thus Che Guevara, which my team killed. Okay, the team that I eventually uh, was put on, tracked them down and killed them. So, so Cuba became a hotbed, a training ground for communist revolutionaries, and they exported revolution. I was on the team that tracked them down and killed them. To extinguish. Yeah. So we were fighting this cold war, which was anything but cold, everywhere 
in Central and South America. And we would go out, you know, we would find a, a, a cell, and we'd go out there and eradicate it. You know, we were like exterminators. You now, know? this and the money that's funding these projects, these early projects, earlier projects. It's all drug money. It's all, it's all. Laundered, washed, it's all it's all washed uh, drug money. Laundered drug money, and the, you know, and uh, all sponsored by the U.S. or yeah. sanctioned, not sponsored. Uh, let, let let me give you an idea. Um, when we assassinated someone, we would use cartel assets. I would go to Pablo and say, "Look, uh, my friends in the U.S. need this guy dead." And Pablo, uh, oh, and in exchange for that, they're going to give you a, a little favor. You know, here's six months of the U.S. Navy patrol schedule in the Caribbean. So Pablo would send one of his sicarios to off the guy. When it became investigated, the guy was killed by a drug uh, cartel assassin, not by a CIA assassin. Win-win for everyone. So it became a way of the U.S. to do the unthinkable, the unmentionable, without getting their hands dirty. What a great, it was a, that's why it lasted so long. I mean, it was perfect. Russia could come out and, and accuse the U.S. of horrendous things, but they could never prove anything because all the trails led back to, to, to South America. Yeah. And it was nothing for me back then. You can't do it now. But I would, uh, a, a target of ours, okay, I would deposit five, ten thousand $10,000 cash in their account. To Then when they would be killed and investigated, What's they would this find, money? oh, What's look, this? There's, there's drug money. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a drug hit, you know. Uh, you can't do that today because you just can't go up and put money in other people's accounts that easily. But back then, it was child's play. So, you know, I would go and put, put obviously, drug money in, uh, into their accounts. And then we'd kill them. And then they would get investigated. And, aha, another uh, <laughs> corrupt so-and-so, you know. Um, so for, and, and by the way, we won the Cold War, you know. We didn't win the Cold War by being Mother Teresa. We won the Cold War by being the devil incarnate. Okay? Uh, and we did that in the shadows so that the U.S. can be this wonderful place where you can go and have a Starbucks coffee, sit on the sidewalk, and not have to worry that somebody's going to come by and throw a bomb at you. You know, um, you know, this is not a perfect place, but boy, it's a lot more perfect than anything else. Well, and that you goes know? back to your point that you made very early on in our conversation, that people are risking their lives, willing to die to emigrate to this country, whether it's legally or illegally. Absolutely. Because of what this country represents and the opportunities that, that or the potential of what one can become of oneself here. Regardless of socioeconomic status, education, they work hard, like you said about capitalism. Um, that opportunity exists here where it doesn't exist in a lot of other places in the world. Look, 
if anybody should be an enemy of the U.S., it should be me. I was betrayed and I spent 25 years in prison. And I'm not. This is still the greatest place in the world. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better than anything else available. Okay? Um, I believe that people have a right to express themselves. And uh, more importantly, uh, I, I made this, uh, this argument to, a, uh, to an Aryan Brotherhood uh, shot collar in prison uh, because he was stunned that, uh, that uh, the Cubans came in, in the color white, you know, uh, he thought all Cubans were blacks. You know. um, his name was Chuck. And I gave him a lesson. I explained to him how uh, the Italians ruled uh, England for 700 years. So although he thought he was pure Aryan, he probably had a little Italian blood in him. And, uh, you know, uh, I gave him uh, uh, some uh, reality lessons. Uh, and I remember telling him, look, uh, you're a racist, and I respect your right to be a racist. But more importantly, people like me are willing to die so you can say something we hate. You know, that's what's important about this place. I'm not worried about racists. You know, it's your right. You know, and then you'll have to listen to me. Uh, say something derogatory about your grandmother. It's it's our right, you know. Uh, it's much better to be uh, sophisticated and dignified and courteous. But you have a right not to be courteous to me, and I have a right not to be courteous to you, and we'll work it out. You know, I have been friends with uh, Aryan brotherhoods, with Latin kings. With uh, 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 with uh, black uh, 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 people um, that that uh, at, at one time there there were the Black Panthers, and I went to university uh, fifty miles south of Oakland, where Huey Newton and the Black Panthers lived, and I met met them because I was curious, you know, and, and I got along with them. I didn't have a problem. They're, they're men. They, they have their opinions, and we don't have to share opinions, okay? Uh, that's what the greatness of this place. I heard the other day that uh, this is, uh, all this is coming down because now uh, there's white racism uh, coming out of the woodwork, and there's Black Lives Matter coming out of the woodwork. And my, my uh, thinking is, great, let's get it out of the woodwork. Let's get it out in the open. So we know everybody who's everybody, and let's work it out. You know, um, and right now, uh, as a Cuban here in, in South Florida, uh, we are Latins down here in, you know, in pretty powerful, in a pretty powerful position. You know, we, we have leaders uh, in power. We have uh, congressmen and senators. I mean, uh, Cubans are uh, disproportionately represented in the U.S. government. There, there's more powerful Cubans 
than there should be uh, in, rela in relation to our numbers, you know. Um, uh, you know, um, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound awful, but because, I, because I'm really proud of being Cuban. The richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos. His father, his stepfather is Cuban. Jeff Bezos would not be the richest man in the world if he hadn't been raised in a Cuban household. We're that good, you know. Um, uh, um, when Jeff Bezos had his idea, which he himself thought was a one in a million shot, Miguel Bezos cashed out his pension plan and gave it to his son. And that's how Amazon started. So Miguel Bezos gave him $300,000, his whole pension plan, and today Miguel, Miguel Bezos has $50 billion, okay? Because he got stock in exchange for the $300,000. You know, so it's a happy ending. But um, we are that kind of people. A father will give his son everything, you know. Um, and you have to ask yourself, how many fathers out there listening to this would take their pension plan and invest it in their son's wild idea? So, uh, we are an exceptional people. We had the only first world country in South America, the only first world country, and, and today we still make a difference. We certainly do in baseball. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, but we're not going to take over Cuba uh, just because we're uh, pretty and smart. So let me ask you this. Should someone like a Jeff Bezos or other wealthy Cubans that came here and have been as successful as they are, should they be giving money to this movement? Or, or because of the missing elements to, ch to make radical government needed change in that country, because those elements, other than a unifying um, desire to live in a different way, I guess not under communist rule, they're missing the charismatic person, they're missing... That, you know, they're missing um, uh, the support staff that that person would need. Um, with missing those things, should people be donating money to 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 this cause? Or well, is people are donating money now, but you're not going to get an important player to donate anything important until you have everything in place. Because important players are smart. What I told you about needing the charismatic leader, the CEO, we all know that. It's the poor people that don't understand the reality. And, and no capitalist is going to throw good money away. <laughs> you know, so Cuba needs to get to the point where capitalists are willing to invest in the overthrow. So let me ask you a question, since you're a money guy. What's the number? What, what is... What is the range of the number? Not, I'm not, you know, obviously we're ballparking here. Yeah. But ballparking. since you have financed coups before. Yeah. So what, uh, 
the, the country's 13 million people. We know the shortcomings of what's going on there. We know the strengths of, of what's going on there. We, we could do it with 100 million. $100 million. Yeah, we, we could do it. That's a rounding error for a guy like Bezos. Absolutely. It's petty cash. I, I could raise it in, in a couple of days. You know, a few, a few phone calls. Okay. But, but you're not going to raise it if you don't have the leader. It's a chicken and egg thing. We can't say, okay, we got 100 million here. Uh, who's who's going to lead? Well, you have no. a lot. Of, you have a lot of your friends. You have a lot of friends here. No, it has Cuban. to be a Cuban. It has no, to no, but you Cuban have born. you have people that that came here. Mm-hmm. They're not in their forties or thirties, but they came here along with you. You know, and some people even younger than you came here. Yeah, in in nineteen fifty nine. So where are those people? Well, uh, there must be there must be someone that's bright and, and articulate. No, we and, don't qualify. Uh, it has to be somebody in their late thirties or forties, which may uh, born and educated in Cuba. He has to be one of them, not one. I'm still, I'm still an outsider. When I went to Cuba, everybody knew I wasn't born. Uh, I, I wasn't a, a one of them. Because you left at such a young age. Yeah, I speak differently. I dress differently. I react differently. I, I'm not. I'm not one of them anymore. And none of us are. Okay. The, the none of none of us from the first and second wave are true Cubans. None of us qualify because we don't understand. And Cuba, you know, we sympathize with their need, but we don't understand. And you have to understand the the animal to get in there and take it over. Okay, it has to be an intellectual, uh, 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 at least a college graduate has to be terribly charismatic, has to really be able to inspire the disaffected, like Fidel. Right. Look, you know, Fidel and I had something in common. We went to the same school. We are Belen, you know. Uh, but Belen left Cuba, you know. So uh, Belen is now making leaders here in Miami, right. okay? Um, you need somebody that has all those qualities and is inside the Communist Party and is willing to turn on the Communist Party. Look, Gorbachev, Gorbachev started the Russian Revolution by simply acting decently. Then Yeltsin finished them off because Yeltsin didn't get a few thousand people on the street. Yeltsin got millions on the street. The army did the math and didn't have enough bullets. Okay? <laughs> yeah. It's economics. You know, Yeltsin stood on that tank and millions of people showed up. They said, we got this many shells and this many bullets. The math doesn't work. They're going to tear us apart. And they overthrew communists. Okay, and what do they have now? They have a czar, czar Putin, but okay. But we need, we don't need in Cuba 
thousands of people on the street. We need millions. We need the 13 million Cubans in Cuba in unison to come out. Okay? Because troops will not fire on their parents. Okay? And to get 13 million people on the street, you need a leader. Find me that guy and I'll give you a hundred million bucks. You know, it's as simple as that. You know. Except it's not that simple. I know. As you point out. Yes. <laughs> so so like I said, I've, when we began to talk, I said, well, I'm really going to throw a bucket of cold water on you because everybody's hopes are up. We're going to uh, take over communism. We know we're going to take over the island, throw the communists out. With what? You know, the Haitians two weeks ago asked the U.S. to invade. And the U.S. said, no, thank you. We've stopped doing this invasion thing. Okay? Uh, they just turned their back on Afghanistan. Can you imagine how you must feel if you help the U.S. troops in Afghanistan? What's going to happen to you when they're gone? You know, when the Taliban comes and takes over, this guy's going to say, you know, I saw him smile at a U.S. soldier. You're gone. You know, there's going to be a massacre in Afghanistan. Yeah, I know. Well, okay? look, that, that's a, that, that movie, uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah. The congressman who had no, he just voted. Yeah. You know, he voted, he made friends by his voting record, and, and he crossed party lines. He voted what was best for his district. Yeah. And then when they finished doing what they were doing in Afghanistan, they left, they left a, in, a, in a vacuum, and when there's a vacuum, it's what have you done for me lately? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, as much as I love to tell everybody, oh yes, we're going to overthrow the communist government in Cuba, and uh, which has been my, my hope for the last well, I'm, I'm 70, so for uh, for 60 years I've been, I've been working and praying uh, towards it. Um, I see it as highly unlikely unless something changes. And look, for all I know, tomorrow some young guy in Cuba is going to get up and make a one speech is all it's going to take, a rousing speech. As long as people goes, get to hear that, it, that goes viral, you know, and. Uh, then we Cubans here will step up, we'll finance it, you know. Well, money's not the issue. Money's not going to be the issue, you know. But you got to have one guy that brings out 13 million Cubans. And there has to be, and, and then we'll give him the support. You know, one great guy is all it's going to take. All right, but but where are you going to find that? I mean, um, yeah, you can't go on. You can't go on. Uh, you, you can't go. Hey, you! I'm going to make you the next, uh, the next, the next. Uh, uh, look, you either have it or you don't. You know that intangible. You know, Fidel had it. Trump has it. Uh, Roosevelt had it. Kennedy had it. You know the the. Uh, um, Gorbachev, uh, Reagan had it. Reagan had it. I mean, how do you, you can't buy this stuff? No, I, I get it, but you got to. You, you're know. born with it, or you're not. Okay, you know? I want to ask you now. It's completely off topic. You're in Miami. 
even though you're a political exile, where's the best Cuban food in Miami? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, These could be quick answers. Mo Mo Molina's restaurant on the June and 41st in Hialeah. Okay. Molina's. Okay. Favorite pizza, and please do not say a Cuban pizza. No, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. La Piazza. La Piazza? Yeah. Okay. Where is that? Is that uh, that's on 49th Street. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, I like it. Favorite frozen pizza? Oh, wow. Now, you got, there's got to be yeah, one. You, you hit me there. Uh, uh, there's uh, the Giorno. Which okay, I, which I have specific freezer. flavor or uh, pepperoni. I'm a pepperoni. pepperoni. I'm a pepperoni guy. All right. Well, Ramon, listen, thank you very much. <laughs> this is an excellent, uh, uh, very educational. Thank you for having um, me. I and your perspective it. is uh, is is not only is it is it great, but it's very important for people to hear because sometimes some of this stuff, the true facts, never actually make it to the surface in in all the uh, news that we're fed or. Uh, or doesn't fit within the narrative that they want to preach. Oh, absolutely. And um, uh, that's a problem lately um, because this information is now... Uh, that's what you were trained in. Rampant. Now it's... Yeah. <laughs> and, and now it's, I mean, gee. But, but you know, um, I will... Uh, I'll die a patriot. Well, so will you I. Know. Uh not as much as you, no, but... But, I mean, not just a Cuban, an American patriot, you know. Um, this place is worth dying for. Well, I think so, too. But anyway, thank you. Thank you for everything. And uh, we're going to have to pick this up because there's so many things to talk about with you. All right. So, uh, but thank you. I wanted to talk about the Cuba thing, which we got out, and that was great. And I also got your, your, your pizza calls and your Cuban <laughs> food, which I've never been to that place, so I want to check it out. All right. But thanks again, Ramon. Right, I appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. Hey, 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 okay. A solid Olympic 10. Absolute zero. Voice Food, finance, and politics, and basically whatever I want to talk about.